Hey, it's great to see all of you here today. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Everybody have a wonderful Thanksgiving? Yeah. Who didn't? No, I'm just kidding. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, we had a good Thanksgiving. We had uh, 25 members of my family all in my house for Thanksgiving, and uh, they're home now. Um, no, I love my family. It was great to get with them. We had a couple days together. It was, they came in from different states. It was, it was great to see them all here. Let me just say also a quick word about something Abby already said about the Charlie Brown thing. If it, I'm telling you, this is going to be a special thing, and I hope you're planning to be there, even if you just drop in and see it. Um, we've done a lot of Facebook promotion. No doubt you've probably seen these things come through your newsfeed. I checked it the other day. Over 8,000 people have clicked that they're interested in coming to this. Now, I don't know if you're paying attention to that stuff. Do I think 8,000 people are going to come? Probably not. But there's 8,000 plus people who said, I'd like to know more about this. I might come. And so I think God's going to do something very special with this. It's, it's, uh, we're, they're definitely going to be the true meaning of Christmas. And when, when folks from our church and others got together to plan this event, it was like, how can we bless our community with something that doesn't happen at Christmas time and give a big hallelujah to God at the same time? That's what this is. And so I hope you will be praying for it, like Abby said. I hope you'll come and support it. It is going to be, be very special, and I, I hope you'll be there. Well, hey, got your Bibles? Please open to Genesis chapter 22. That's where we're going to be spending a good part of our time today. And while you're finding Genesis chapter 22, let me just quickly refresh your memory that we are in a series right now on finances called Too Much. We are exploring four biblical principles together about money. These four principles that if we'll take them to heart, it can absolutely revolutionize our thinking on this subject about, you know, why you have it, where it came from, and, and what it is that God would have you to do with it. Now, so far in this series, we've looked at the first Two of the four biblical principles, which is gratitude and contentment. And I really appreciate um, Gary Johnson's insights on these first two principles um, in his book, Too Much. And we made this available. I believe we have a couple copies left if you would still like one, if you haven't gotten one yet. And what we're doing, we're just asking everybody in our church to just spend a little bit of time reading this. It's a companion resource to our study, also our life groups. Um, we've got study guides available for anybody that would like those for your life group or for you individually. We believe that collectively, um, the preaching in this series, plus this companion resource we're putting in your hands, and our time together in our life groups are just studying out individually. All of that combined is going to give us and help us have a very well-rounded understanding of what the Bible teaches us about money, how God sees it. And I hope you'd agree with this, that don't you want to see this subject the same way God sees this subject? I do, and I hope you do as well. Now today, we're going to dive into the third biblical principle, which is trust. Trust, and let's be honest, trust can be hard sometimes, can it? I'm not just talking about with our finances. I'm talking about trust in general. I mean, just think through um, different contexts where you've got to trust somebody or trust this or trust. Trust can be difficult. But learning how to trust God with our money can be one of the most significant lessons that we learn as Christians. And it can also be one of the more difficult lessons that we learn um, about our faith. Now, we're going to be looking at a guy um, from the Old Testament who had to learn how to trust God. 
When I say learn how to trust God, is because that's what we have to do too. Very rarely is somebody who decides to follow Christ and then everything about their life is fully trusting God in every single, it, it, it doesn't work that way usually. Trusting God is something that is learned. It's something that we grow into. It is part of the maturing process that every Christian goes through. And so we're going to look at the, the life of a guy who had to learn how to trust God. And when people think back on his life, they say, now that was a man of great faith, but he had to learn how to do it, and he made many mistakes along the way. Uh, the guy I'm talking about is none other than Abraham, and his story is told for the most part in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, where I've had you turn to. And if you're not as familiar with Abraham, I can tell you this, that he, was, he is considered the very first Jewish person in the Bible. He is referred to at times as Father Abraham. And if you grew up in church, then no doubt in Sunday school you, you were raised up singing the song, right? And uh, we're not going to sing it together today. You can do that on your own. But it involves actions, and I could sing it for you, but I won't. So, he's Father Abraham, and God made a promise to Abraham that out of him, he was going to create an incredible group of people that would become known as the Israelites. He made a covenant with Abraham, and it was out of that family, out of this people, that would come Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. So Abraham is, is a, a person of such great importance to our faith, and he's all over the pages of the Bible. And what we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 22 is what I would consider the defining moment of Abraham's life. You got it open? Let's read it together. It says, God tested Abraham. That's how this chapter opens. And I want you to keep that word, tested, at the forefront of your minds. God tested Abraham. How did he do it? He said, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. And if this is your first time to ever read that, you might be thinking to yourself, what in the world? Sacrifice my own son. You know, Abraham and Sarah, his wife, for their entire lives, they couldn't have children. And God made a promise to Abraham, you're gonna. I'm gonna give you a son. It didn't happen right away, but he said, I'm gonna give you a son, and, and, and through your son, I'm gonna build this great family. And now, all of a sudden, the son is born, the son started to grow up, and God says, Abraham, I want you to kill him. And I think Abraham, probably in the deepest part of his mind, was wondering the same thing that we would wonder. Why? Why? Well, we know why. Because God wanted to what? Test Abraham. God wanted to test him and to prove that he was actually committed to God. The question that hovers over this whole example is, did Abraham love the gift that God gave him in the son, his son, or did Abraham love more the giver of the gift? That's the test. And quite honestly, when we're talking about our finances and, and money, that same question could hover over that entire conversation. Do you love the gifts or do you love more the giver of the gifts? This is the test 
that Abraham is being put under? Was Abraham willing to let go of what he held on so tightly, which was his son, as a show of trust to God? Look at verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And I, I don't know if Abraham got any sleep that night, but I can tell you, I wouldn't have gotten a wink. But the next day, they, they did exactly what God said. They got up, they left, there was no send-off, there was no um, procrastination that we re- read about in Scripture anyway. They just got up early, packed their stuff, they got on the road, there was no goodbyes, there was no farewell parties, no big hugs. It's, we don't even read that Sarah showed up to hug and kiss her son goodbye. We, we, don't, we don't read that. They just went Look at verse 4. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. Now pay very close attention to this next part. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Do you see the pronoun in there, we? We will worship. We will come back. This is huge because it tells us exactly what Abraham was thinking in that moment. If you were to fast forward to Hebrews chapter 11, we get a little bit more of an insight into what Abraham was thinking because there it tells us that Abraham had reasoned to himself that this was a promise from God and that even if he kills his son, God would raise him from the dead. That's what he's thinking as he's walking up there to do the sacrifice. Abraham knew this promise depended on him. God would raise him from the dead. This is a man that trusted God. Now look at verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire (coughs) and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father Abraham, Father, yes my son, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. I think this clues us in that Isaac is sniffing out something here. This isn't our normal practice. Where's the lamb? Look at verse 9. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there, arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. I can't even imagine. I cannot even imagine um, what would have to be an indescribable emotion. Here we have a detail here that Isaac was bound. Was that because Isaac was resisting? We don't know. We know Isaac was old enough to at least carry a load of wood, so he wasn't a toddler. We don't know exactly, but I can't fathom the depths of what's going on. Verse 11, it says this, But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. It's like, Abraham, you've proven to me. You've proven to me that you trust me. You've proven to me that you're willing to give up the, the one thing you love more than anything else, you, 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 the gift that I gave you. You're willing to give that up because you love the giver of the gift more. 
In the following verses, it tells us that God provided a replacement sacrifice for Isaac, a ram. And this was a precursor, it's a preview of how Jesus, the Lamb of God, becomes our substitute on the cross. And this whole thing just shouts, Abraham loved God, the giver, more than he loved the gift. What a test. I've told you that I don't like tests. I never liked tests in school. Maybe you did, I didn't. I never was a great test taker. I hated essay tests. I did not like objective questions. You know, true, false, fill in the blank, never was any good at that stuff. I did not like oral exams. In seminary, I had to take a series of oral exams where you just stand there and your professors grill you. Didn't like that. But there are all kinds of tests that we have to take. And what do tests show? It shows us if we've learned our lessons. And by the time that we get to Genesis chapter 22, and Abraham is put to this incredible test, he proved, he showed, I've learned the lessons to trust God in everything. But Abraham would have never passed that test in Genesis chapter 2 had he not learned to trust God first. And that journey to trusting God was a long journey and it was marked by multiple failures. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and God gave the original promise and he said, I want you to get up and I want you to go to another place I'm going to tell you to go. And we learn right there, Abraham got up and went, but he got in some trouble along the way. He trusted enough in God to, to leave his homeland, but as soon as adversity came up, Something happened. We learned that a famine came into the land and he and Sarah detoured to Egypt. And on their way to Egypt, they concocted a lie. They said, you know, when we get to Egypt, I'm going to tell them that, Sarah, you're my sister, not my wife. It's not going to be good if, uh, if I tell them you're my wife. And so this lie created all kinds of trouble. And you can read about that in the book of Genesis. He just couldn't trust God completely that he would protect him and protect this promise in a foreign land. Fast forward a few more years, it happened again. Remember God told Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to give you a son, but they got impatient. And Sarah's like, this is never going to happen. Look how old we're getting. And so she says to Abraham, I've got a servant. Her name is Hagar. You go be with her and let's have a family through her. And Abraham's like, sounds good to me. And so, now I, I don't know exactly how, sorry, that was... That came out wrong. <laughs> thinking like a man. All right. So he said, okay. And she gets pregnant. And then all of a sudden when that happens, Sarah hates Hagar because of it. Causes all kinds of problems. Hagar gets sent away. And, and, and I'm telling you, it's the example of when you stop trusting God and you think you know better and you get impatient and you run in front of God. And I wonder, have you done that before? Have you gotten impatient waiting on God? And, and so you jump out in front of him? Tell the truth, it does more harm than good, doesn't it? It did here. Abraham did not trust God in this instant to, to, to fulfill his promise. So Abraham had some struggles with trusting God. And they're not unlike the same kind of struggles in trusting God that we have today. But eventually, Abraham got it. Eventually, we get to Genesis 22. And it's like, lesson learned. And he proved that he fully trusted God. 
when he was willing to sacrifice his own son and show, I love the giver of the gifts more than I love the gift itself. There's one more thing that I want you to notice from Abraham's journey of learning how to trust God. He was not only the first Jew, he was not only the father of the Israelites, but Abraham was the very first person ever in the Bible to give a tithe, to give back to God. If you got your Bible still, look back to Genesis chapter 14. Let me just briefly show you that this was also a part of Abraham's life that he had to learn to trust God with. If you look at verse 17 of chapter 14, it says this. <clears throat> After Abram returned from defeating Kedolormer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shevev, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abraham, by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abraham did this. Abraham gave him a tenth tithe of everything. Now, there's a lot of details here, and I would encourage you to go read Hebrews chapter 6 and chapter 7 for a fuller explanation of how Abraham and Melchizedek relate together and how they relate to Jesus. But I'll let you do that on your own. Hebrews explains it clearly. But here are some details I don't want you to miss. Melchizedek was both king and he was priest of Salem. Now, Salem is a shortened version of Jerusalem, the city of God. Now, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And this king of righteousness, who already had his vision and his focus solely on God, this one, he brought out bread and wine, and he wanted Abraham to eat at his table. Now, Melchizedek is quite a significant figure, both here and later when there's connections to him in the New Testament. But he was one that was solely committed. He was a king and he was priest of the people. And when Abraham gave a tithe to him, he was doing it before the law was even written about what the instructions are for a tithe. This is a very significant thing. This is a good thing that Abraham did. It was a right thing to do. And when he did it, he was declaring that I am a follower of this king who is a follower of the king. That was what he was saying. He said, you are my king. And by his actions, by this gift, it was a declaration that I'm on your side because you're on God's side. And it was both a verbal acknowledgement and it was an acknowledgement with his actions. It was a show of trust in God. Now, there's several words that we could connect with Abraham's life. We could say tithe, we could say trust, we could say test. All three of these words describe something significant about Abraham's journey with God. And those three words say something very significant about our journey with God too. Abraham had to learn to trust God. And just like he had to learn to trust him, so do we have to learn to trust God. Like I was saying a moment ago, it's all part of the maturing process as a follower of Jesus Christ. And the big part of that maturing process is trusting God in everything 
especially when it comes to money, the one thing that many of us struggle with the most to trust anybody other than ourselves with. So learning how to give back to God, it's a big deal. Now, I want to talk just kind of openly with you. Many people have raised this question, and no doubt you have raised it as well, or somebody you've talked to has raised it with you. And the question comes out kind of like this. Why do I need to give anything? Why do I need to tithe? That, that makes no sense to me. Why does God need our money? Wait a minute, I thought God was the God. Why, why does God need my money? Have you ever wondered that to yourself, or has anybody ever said that to you? Why does God need me to do this? Well, first, I would say this in response that you are absolutely right in your evaluation. God does not need your money at all. Do you think that the God who by the very utterances of the words that come out of his mouth spoke into existence everything in creation, do you think he needs your money? We worship a God who became a man who walked among his creation. And while he was on earth, he took some water and he spoke to it and it became the best wine in the land. With just a few small loaves of bread and a few fish, he fed thousands of people. He emptied nets with boatloads of fish by just saying, drop them. By the words go, he sent demons into a herd of pigs. He caused blind eyes to see, deaf ears to hear, weak legs to walk again. He brought life into lifeless bodies. He brought, bought salvation for every man, woman, boy, and girl on a wooden cross. And he conquered death by coming out of that tomb three days later. He ascended into heaven and he's coming back again. Do you think that God needs your money? Absolutely not. But I can tell you, God as powerful as that, who does not need your money, he desperately though, however, wants you to acknowledge with your mouth and with your heart and with your life that he is Lord of all. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to trust him in everything. And he wants you to worship him humbly and no one else. And giving back a portion to God of what he has so generously given to us with the right attitude proclaims very loudly that God be praised. And there's nothing going to come between me and the Lord. I trust him. It proclaims that my faith is in the most holy God who is going to keep his promise and provide everything that I need. It proclaims that my love for God is greater than anything else. It's like Abraham. I love the giver of the gift more than I love the gift. That's what giving is. Now, I've shared with you this already. The Bible is loaded with all kinds of verses teaching about how God views money and wealth and possessions and the joys of it and the dangers of it, I want to show you just one uh, passage out of those 2,300 verses. You got your Bible still? Flip over to the New Testament, and I'd like to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is something that Paul was teaching the church. Paul took in a love offering, and he was talking to the people about their generosity and what it does and how God sees it and what it's going to go towards, and I believe there's something in here that answers many of our questions today. He says this, starting in verse 6. He says, Remember, church, 
Whoever sows sparingly will also <coughs> reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give whatever you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. And for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You see, these few short verses, what Paul was talking about, is all about generosity, giving back to God, and trusting him to do with it what he says he's going to do with your faith. I think 2 Corinthians answers a number of questions for us. Namely, I think it answers this question, why should I tithe? Why should I do this? Well, I can tell you just from my personal experience in ministry that those who tithe on a regular basis, you know, Christians who have made a commitment to set aside a portion of their earnings as an offering, as a gift back to God, people who do that have a much more rewarding and fulfilling Christian life than those who don't do that. Or those who perhaps just give sporadically or just whenever there happens to be some leftovers. The people who set that aside first and proclaim it, this is for you, God, and I'm so thankful you are number one. Those people tend to have a much more rewarding, fulfilling Christian life than those who don't. And verse 6 in what Paul says kind of speaks to that. What does it say? Whoever sows sparingly will also what? Reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will do what? Reap generously. You know what this is a proclamation of? It's a proclamation of trust. It's a question of, do you trust God that that is true? It's about trust. You know, in the Old Testament, it's very clearly laid out what the standard was for God's children. He said, I want you to give a tenth of all your first your first fruits at the tenth of your increase. Then when we come to the New Testament, after Jesus, there's been some debate over that. And, and it has been debated. And I, and I like uh, Gary Johnson. He deals with this question. It's like, are Christians today, is God's standard of giving a tenth, is that still what God wants? Is the Old Testament expectation the same as the New Testament expectation? Like I said, I love Gary Johnson's handling of that subject. Um, here, I'll tell you what I think, um, and this is my opinion. You have to wrestle this out in your own walk with the Lord. But personally, I don't believe that 10% is an outrageous standard that we, you know, to follow today. I think 10% is a good standard. 
here's where I learned that. I, I grew up in a pastor's home, and so I, which I deeply appreciate. I um, was taught about tithing when I was a little boy, and here's how my parents did it. When I was little, and I don't remember what age, but um, I remember receiving an allowance, and I got $2 a week. You talk about living high on the hog, $2 a week. I thought I had just hit the jackpot. But then every time I got that $2, I would sit down, and my parents would help me separate 20 cents out of that $2, because 20 cents um, is 10%, and 20%, or excuse me, 20 cents belonged to God, and then I would take my offering, and I would, on Sundays, I would take it to church, and I would put it in the offering, and this was the pattern, and, and my, my dad would say, now you have $1.80, and this is, this, is, this is what God wants you to have. And I remember, and parents, I'm just going to encourage you. Lessons like that early in your kids' lives pay massive dividends as they grow up. And I would also say this, moms and dads, let your kids see your faith lived out in front of them. Let them know that you're generous back towards God. Let them know why you give. Don't let the offering bag pass by and let your kids wonder about it. You teach them. What is this about? What, and this is what a lot of this series is about. It's about having a well-rounded understanding of how God sees it, how he wants us to see it. And the bottom line question, do you love the giver of the gift more than the gift? So I believe when it comes to giving, God wants you to make up your own mind about what you are to give. For some, the thought of 10% is such a giant leap of faith, you're probably going, my goodness, that would bankrupt me. Others, 10% would not be a stretch in the least. I believe the scripture, there's a lot of scripture that teaches proportionate giving. What I mean by that is keeping in line with your income. You set aside a portion in your heart of what it is to give that you dedicate to God. The question in my understanding of scripture is not should I, but rather what does God want me to give that brings glory to him and declares like Abraham, I'm with him. I trust him. So giving is going to vary from Christian to Christian. It is personal between you and God and no one else. And I would encourage you to pray over it, dedicate it, and give, how the Bible says, cheerfully. What else does 2 Corinthians 9 teaches us about giving? I believe we tithe, we give back for this reason. Because God has a deep desire to take care of you. Look at verse 8 again. What does it say? It says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. It goes on to talk about how he provides seed and he provides bread and God wants to provide. God is our source. God is our provider. It really comes down, do you believe him? Do you trust him? It's all about trust. Why tithe? I tell you, it's a massive part of worship. What's it say in verse 11? Your generosity does what? It results in a thanksgiving to God. There's something about honoring God with this part of our lives that is a big shout of worship to him. Why else do we tithe? Because God is going to take that and he is going to multiply it in ways that we could never fathom. Look back at verse 12. This service or this giving that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also an overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because of the service by which you have proved yourself. Men will do what? They'll praise God 
for the obedience. It goes on to talk about what is going to happen with this. I, I pray this often. I've prayed something like this in front of the church here many times. I'll say, God, would you please take what's given and make heaven fuller with it? Would you open up heaven's doors and would you be, allow it to be heard? Would you allow this gospel to go out with the generosity of the church? Feed the evangelistic fire of your good news. And more and more people here, your generosity, it's trust, it's saying, God, you're number one, it's supplying the needs of ministry. If you think about through the book of Acts, it was the generosity of the church, amplified by the Holy Spirit that brought thousands to know Jesus. God's going to do something very special with it. Heard a story, a true story of a missionary in Africa. And he was teaching his small body of believers about tithing. And he was a little surprised one day when there was a knock at his door. And he opened the door and there was one of the native kids and he was holding a fish that he had caught. And the missionary says, what are you doing? And he says, well, you taught us about tithing and I'm bringing my tithe to the church. And so the missionary received the fish and he said, okay, well, if this is your tithe, where are the other nine fish? And the little boy got a big smile on his face. He goes, ha, they're still in the river. I got to go catch them. <laughs> and I love that little true story because I think it captures the heart of the entire subject. The first belongs to God. A determination to give. Not should I, but I will. And the trust of God that he'll provide the rest. And, and that's giving. That's given. Church, here's an intentional question that I would like for each of you to prayerfully consider this morning between you and God alone. And it's just this question. Do you trust God? Do you trust that he will provide for you? Do you trust that he will do what he says he will do? Do you believe him when he says that you can test me on this. Do you realize that when it comes to giving to God, it's the only time in all of Scripture where God says, I'll allow you to put me to the test on this to see if what I'm telling you is the truth. That's found in Malachi chapter, chapter 3. It starts in verse 10, and, and God challenges the people with this. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me. In this, nowhere else in the Bible do you read anything like this of God. Test me. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. As you can imagine, as a pastor, I have conversations about this subject and many others all the time. And this is the challenge I offer to people when we talk about giving. When people say, I don't know if I can do it, I can't afford it, I don't know this, and there's, there's, because there's fear. And I say, here's what I've challenged you to do. You get on your knees and you pray. And you ask God to convict your heart, and then, and then you take up this challenge. For 90 days, become a tither. For 90 days. Three months. Set aside a portion of what you're going to give to God, and you be faithful with it, you dedicate it to God. And then you give it. And you watch and see what happens. And if at the end of that 90 days, 
you're like, that was the biggest waste of time in my life. Man, I am so much worse off now. I wish I'd have never done that. If that is the result, then I'll tell you, we'll give everything you gave right back to you. But that's never been the result. I've offered that challenge many times. Never has somebody asked for it back. But you know what I hear back from people all the time? It's this. I cannot believe what God has done in the last three months. I've heard stories back from people like, I, I was having struggles with paying my bills, and all of a sudden, I can pay my bills, and I didn't make any more money. I hear stories back all the time of like, hey, I didn't know how this was going to turn out, but it worked out. I hear people say things like, I'm happier. I'm more fulfilled. I feel like I'm more in control. I feel like God's working me. God's showing me some things. Every time. Every time. Because God keeps his promises so it really comes down, do you trust him? I'll end with this. I don't know where I heard this. I don't know if I read it or I heard a preacher say it. I honestly don't know where I got this, but I believe it with all my heart. 90% with God's blessing is greater than 100% without it. You think about it.